This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. I'll be reading from the ESV. And it reads, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or who were oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word. Well, you ready to study your Bibles? Goodness, man. It's It's like we say the same question every Sunday. You ready to study your Bible? Yes. There we go. <clears throat> Man, I'm so glad to see uh, all of you. Um, some of our, our people are, are out still on spring break. Some of them have returned from spring break and are recovering and are uh, with the sniffles and things like that. And so, uh, man, miss y'all watching. Um, but as we uh, pick up where we left off, we... Enter the second section of the conclusion of chapter one in Mark's gospel. But to, but to understand what's before us, we uh, have to remember that Mark's writing is to help his readers identify and see that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the king. And he's not just any king. He's the king of kings and that his kingly authority in his kingly authority he is ushering in a new kingdom and it's not that he needs to fill his kingdom with people but it's that you and I are in need of his kingdom to be a reality for us see unlike kings that you and I know Jesus didn't come to be served but did come to serve and to serve in the most important way possible. And Mark reminds us that the effects of sin and the forces of evil are very much alive and working, working, but they are unable to succeed. Oh, that's good, right? That's good. That Satan can tempt you, but he cannot defeat you. That Satan could make you forget your joy, but he can't rob your joy. 
Our enemy is limited because of Christ's victory over him. Mark shows us that when Jesus was in the battlefield of the wilderness, going to war with Satan's temptations, he was doing it for us. Jesus's victories were for our battles. So you can clearly see, family, Mark's case is Jesus's kingship for you. Mark's case is Jesus's kingdom for you. But more focused on what's before us, what Alice had just read, we examine the last two thirds of the same day we left off last week. Jesus calls these four people to himself, these fishermen who are now to be his disciples, his students, and they immediately set up a sort of base of operations in Peter's home in a town called Capernaum. And then that morning, they go into the synagogues and two incredible things happen that express a central truth. And that is, That Jesus flexes his kingly authority with his words and with his actions. He teaches and everyone is amazed and he casts a demon out of a man. And what is exemplified for us and what is exemplified for his disciples at the time to see is that in his authority, Jesus wasn't just a passionate truth teller. He was a, a, a passionate doer of the truth. He was emotionally invested in the people and the work that he came to do. What happened that morning really connects us to everything that comes after and connects us to what we have before us now. See, in in the secular space, not, not always the case, but is pretty routinely the case, people in authority have no heart in the places they exercise that authority in. The authority and the heart are disconnected. But this isn't the case for Jesus. Jesus shows us his authority in the way, and and in that way that he shows his authority, he shows us his heart. And here's the thing, for for his disciples and his students, this this is for them to emulate. And this is for us as well. Before we move forward, though, I invite you to pray for me as I pray for you as we together hear from God this morning. God, we need you this morning. We need you this morning with thankful hearts for the gift of your word. So we ask that you give us ears to hear, softened hearts, and grace for each other. In Christ Jesus' name. Amen. If I can ask you this morning, it's sort of a heart examination, but you would have to be honest for it to be beneficial for this exercise to work. You would have to be honest with yourself. But if I can ask you this morning, if you could ask one thing of Jesus, just one thing, what would that be? If you take a second to reflect on that, what would you ask of Jesus this morning? And then I want you to keep this answer in your mind as we look again to the events of the text. After the synagogue, these boys go do what we all going to do when we leave this place. They're going to eat. 
And Peter, like me, or or me like Peter, is preaching the gospel of his mother-in-law's cooking. He's telling Jesus and the other disciples, hey, man, when we get home, man, y'all going to eat good. You can eat real good. When we, when we, get, when we get home, my mother-in-law, man, she, she's going she's gonna to throw down. But they come home, and it's not what they expect. When they come home, they are expecting this meal that's going to be before them, their Sabbath meal. And instead, what they get is Peter's mother-in-law in bed with a fever. Now, we don't, we don't know that she was gravely ill. We don't think so. But we know that she was ill enough to be indisposed. We know that she was ill enough to be in bed, done. What does Jesus do? Jesus stands next to her, and he takes her by the hand, and he raises her up. And immediately the fever leaves her. This is a continued exercise of his authority. See, in the synagogue, Jesus proved that he's Lord over the spiritual, right? A demon comes up, interrupts him. He's like, out, quiet, get out. He proves I'm Lord over the spiritual realm. But in the home, in the home, in this moment, he's showing that he's not just king of the demons. He's king over the sicknesses as well. That he's Lord over not just the spiritual, but he's Lord over the physical. But notice, family, with the same passion, with the same emotion, Jesus exercises his authority in different ways. In the synagogue, it was a scene. He's teaching. He's interrupted by this man. There's convulsing, all kinds of noises. There's weird banter back and like, well, not back and forth, but but him like spewing at Jesus, like calls him by his title. You're the holy one of God. I know who you are. What are you going to do with us? It's a scene for everyone to see. But here in the home, it's it's quiet. It's personal. Jesus is soft. He's slow. He's tender. Sometimes with with my children, maybe you've done this before too, but sometimes with my children, I like quiet aggressively, try to get them to do something. You ever done that where you're like, you know, where you're like, you know, you're trying to quiet aggressively get them to do something, get their attention? Okay, maybe it's just me and I'm a terrible parent. Um, That's fine. My sin's out. Put yours out too. But not Jesus, not Jesus in this moment. That's, that's not what he's doing. No, he's, he's gently and tenderly taking her hand and leading her to life. I mean, he could have healed her any way he wanted. He could have spoken a word. He could have shouted from the other room. He could have grabbed some mud and rubbed it on her forehead. I mean, he could, have, he could have healed her in any way. But as we'll see in later chapters, Jesus heals according to the needs of the person and the message he's trying to communicate in the moment. But by standing next to her and taking her hand and guiding her up, what is Jesus communicating to Simon's mother-in-law? What is Jesus communicating to his disciples. What message is he laying down for us right now? If I could just 
say the fever was not significant. In the grand scheme of everything he has done so far, and, I, and even will do, the, the fever is something small. Even to what he did that day, the fever, it's small. Jesus could have very easily walked into the room and said to the mother-in-law, you're sick, don't worry, I'll make lunch. Peter's wife could have said, hey, I know you guys just came from teaching in the synagogue. I prepared a meal for you because my mom is down. Any one of the disciples could have said, oh, she's sick, no worries, I'll make lunch, I got it, we're good. None of that happened, though. And so we see even from this, is that Jesus didn't heal her so that she can accomplish something for him. No. This is different from everything we've read so far in the chapter. I mean, all all the teachings, all the conversations, they took place in public. They took place in these uh, uh, wildly, I mean, the synagogue scene was wildly public. And they were purposefully public. Jesus wanted to express his messiahship, his, his presence in this moment, his kingly authority. But not this. this. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is using this moment with this woman to teach us something incredibly profound and spiritual. That your physical afflictions matter. And not only do they matter, but Jesus deals with this woman. In a humble, sweet, and compassionate way. Jesus' attention isn't just only to the seemingly greater things. Jesus cares for the exodus in Egypt, and he cares for the mother-in-law sick with the fever. That's our king. Our king can split the sea and can clear a headache for the deliverance of his people. This morning, you you may feel like you have a God that cannot relate to your small or seemingly insignificant, trivial needs. You may feel that you have a God who cannot and maybe will not speak to your finances, speak to your parenting, speak to your prejudices or your lust, or speak to even your attitude problem within your home. You You may feel like you have a God who dispassionately looks on these smaller things because there's greater evils in the world. I tell you, family, that's not true you have a God who stands next to you and holds you by the hand and pulls you up out of darkness to light we're being honest sickness at its inception is not the plan of God it wasn't no sickness in the garden sickness was brought with Adam's sin It is an effect of the fall. To say that God cares about your sin and not the effects of what sin has done to the world is incredibly disproportionate to what we see in the Bible. He cares about the brokenness of the fall. He cares about the small, quiet moments in your life. And the truth is that you and I, our lives are filled With these small moments. These small, seemingly insignificant moments. These moments where our lives meet the brokenness of this world. 
small moments. But family, I have to tell you, Jesus' heart is big enough for your small moments. Jesus' heart is big enough to care for the tiny, insignificant needs of your life, seemingly insignificant needs of your life. Jesus cares. The heart, this is the heart of Jesus, that he cares about the great and the small. But that's, that's the heart of Jesus. What about our hearts? What about ours? After her health is restored, after her energy is restored, after her vitality is restored, what, is, what, is Simon mother, what does Simon's mother-in-law do? It says she immediately got up and began to serve them. Family, anyone who's experienced the healing work of Jesus has things to say. Anyone who has experienced the healing hand of Jesus serves because they have been served. Are you hearing me this morning? Anyone who's experienced Jesus in such a way that they've been changed, therefore goes out and has a thing to say and something to do. Jesus exemplifies his authority in word and deed. And because he does so, we who are beneficiaries of his healing grace and his loving mercy now share in the word by proclaiming his goodness and kindness. And we share in his deeds, doing what he has commanded us to do with hearts transformed by him, fueled with passion and fervor as he was church. I pray this is true of us. I pray that it is true that you are sharing the mercies of Christ and doing the work that he's called you to do. That you are responding to the receiving of perfect, tender love with gladness and joyful service. As the song says, testify that God still provides. Tell the truth that he's been good to you. Raise a shout if he's brought you out and let everything that has breath sing his praises. Is this true of you? Is this a reflection of your heart? Are you reflecting the heart of the Savior? I pray we have a posture like Simon's mother-in-law. Of service to others because Jesus has served us. Look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. It wasn't that hard to find Jesus. After the Sabbath ended, it wasn't that hard to find Jesus. Maybe it was easy because there was one small house in the neighborhood that was shouting and singing the praises of their Messiah. Maybe it was easy because there was a house that was so excited about the work that had been done that day that you could hear it from outside. Maybe. But whatever it was, Jesus' work at the synagogue, that news traveled fast. 
That news traveled fast and people knew where Jesus was. They were anticipating this hour in the evening. And we know it was dark because by law, the Sabbath can only end when there's three stars in the sky. So we know it was evening. But they waited for this hour to bring all. All the sick and all the possessed. I love the distinction made by Mark. Again, he's showing us, Mark is showing us in his writing that Jesus is not just Lord over the physical, but the spiritual as well. But here's the thing. Jesus worked all morning, worked in the afternoon, and now this evening has more work ahead of him. It's not hyperbole. The whole town flocked to him. Could could, could you just imagine you home after a long day of work and you get a knock on your door? And you open the door, and and there's a family, an entire family outside the door going, my daughter's leg is broken. And you go, okay, come in. And then as soon as you close the door, there's another knock. And you open the door, and there's another family. And you go, our uncle is crazy. And you're like, okay, come in, come in, come in. And then there's another knock, and then you open that door, and it's two families. And they're saying, we have a problem. We're all sick. And you're like, I don't have any more room, but we'll figure it out. Just come in. And then there's a knock on the window, and then there's a knock on your back door. And you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. So you open the front door to go outside, and you can't because it's surrounded with the entire city, not the neighborhood, the entire city that you live in has flocked to this little fisherman's house. What would you do? A wave of ill, sick, and possessed people crowding not just the inside of the home, but the outside, pushing on each other from the outside, trying to get a view at this Jesus that they heard about doing work at the synagogue, trying to push on your house, move things out of your way so they can fit in the comfortability of your home is fragilely undone. Look at the posture of Jesus. He's not annoyed. He's not frustrated. He's not upset. He's not bothered. He sees them and begins to heal them. It's all happening. The lame are walking, the congested are breathing, the crazy are sane, and the demons have been casted out. All power, all authority, and all loving service. Family, bring your cares to Jesus and he will not deal with you in frustration. He will not deal with you in anger. He will not deal with you in annoyance or pity. He will not deal with you in sadness. He will not deal with you in exhaustion. Our God does not sleep and he does not tire and he commands you, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What a beautiful truth that reveals the heart of our king. He cares. He 
cares. He cares about you being overwhelmed. He cares about your relationships. He cares about your working conditions. He cares about the things that tax you emotionally. Cast your cares on him. But there is a reality here we have to deal with to understand the next set of verses. There is no doubt that the people in the crowd who were coming to him were not people who understood his sermon of repent and believe. They were not people who saw Jesus as the Messiah for their souls. But they were there because they saw a healer, a miracle worker. They saw Jesus as the deliverer of whatever I'm going through right now and not the deliverer of the most important thing plaguing my soul. They saw Jesus as a means to their end. But today we see this too. Today we see this too. Many people will recall that 1 Peter 5 text and they'll stay at verse 7. They won't look at verse 6. It reads in its entirety. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourself is literally translated to surrender to. Surrender to the mighty hand of God. Before you can cast your anxieties on him, you have to care about what really is beyond earthly need. Jesus wants your heart, and then he'll take your anxieties. Jesus wants you to receive everlasting spiritual redemption before you can experience temporal, earthly relief. Almost every commentator I came across in preparing for this message tied this to John 6. You know this story so well. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's Lunchable. And they're following him. And they're like, yes, Jesus, you're great. Yes. And and you as the reader, you're going, yes, souls saved, kingdom expanded. This is so good. But then what happens? Jesus runs away from them. He hides from them. And then they catch up to them and they're like, hey, Jesus, what happened, man? We're confused. What's going on? And Jesus, Jesus says, you missed it. You missed it. I gave you earthly bread. I gave you physical nourishing so that it could point you to your spiritual one. I gave you physical relief so that it could point you to your spiritual relief. I mean, what what does he say? What does he say when he's instituting communion? Unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you don't get into the kingdom. But these people, they, they just wanted more physical nourishing. They didn't want spiritual liberation. Outside Peter's house, Jesus knows most of these people are here to use him. But even in this truth, we see his heart. He genuinely cared about the physical plight of the people, no matter their motivations. He lovingly and gently healed him, and he was tirelessly healing. A full day, morning 
tonight. Family, can I ask you to recall the answer from the question earlier? What's the one thing you would ask of Jesus this morning? Remember your answer. And then allow me to say that Jesus is more divine than your personal genie. That Jesus is more divine than your personal vending machine. That living by a code or a set of principles is not enough. Jesus is calling you to surrender your life, to live under the authority of his word and his deed. And this is the lie of the gospel of prosperity, that you don't come to Jesus to get stuff. You don't come to Jesus for success. You don't come to Jesus so that all your physical ailments can go away. No, notice the writing. It says all came, but only many were healed. Now, I'm not a Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, or, or, Aramaic or, or Latin expert, but I know enough to know that all in the Bible always meant all. And many does not mean all. Jesus is not your means to an end. He is the end and the beginning and the process. Jesus is everything you need and he is the only king available to you that is enough to satisfy the very pangs of your soul because of his great love for you. He gives himself up to be the total satisfaction of your soul's desires. Only he can be your spiritual liberator. I ask you this morning to trust Jesus with your whole life. Then cast your cares, your anxieties on him. This episode in our season finale does not end here. Verse 35 says, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. After sleeping, he gets up earlier than everyone else, sneaks out of the house, and goes off to a quiet and secluded place. And he prayed to the Father. I like what Kent Hughes offers here. He says, often many of us structure our prayer time with adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, but not Jesus. There was never any confession ever. Well, that's because he didn't sin. But we can be sure that there was plenty of adoration, thanksgiving, and petition. Jesus praying during his time on earth shows us that his divinity and his humanity were spent in the presence of God. In his divinity, he was a working person of the Godhead. And in his humanity, there was never a moment where he didn't tether himself to the presence and power of God. He sought time alone with God regularly and often. And family, we need to pray often. 
We need to do what is necessary for our communion with the Lord. We need to find times alone in the quiet with our phone locked in the other room and throw ourselves in solitude as we throw ourselves on God. To acknowledge the dependence that we have on him. And because he cares, beloved, to cast your anxieties on him. I think the prayer time that Jesus was having in this moment was one of thanksgiving and praise for the work that he was able to do. I think he was praying a prayer of thanksgiving for the lives that were saved, for the plights that were healed and restored. I think his prayer to the Father was a refreshment. I think in his quiet time, in his prayer time, he was restored. He was ready to continue the work ahead of him. He was centered, grounded, anchored. And when the disciples came to him and were like, hey, we got to capitalize on what just happened. We could have a whole city here for the kingdom. Jesus says, no, it's time to go. He said, I'm willing to heal And heal and heal, yes, but that's not why I came. I didn't come to be the source of temporal healing. I came to be the source of an everlasting one. Matt's the only one excited about Jesus this morning. He says, let's go preach elsewhere. The work here is done. Let's go preach elsewhere. What's left in Capernaum are the people, are the ones who are foreshadowing centuries and centuries of people, past and present, who have only wanted Jesus for what they hoped they can get out of him. And Jesus says, I'm not here for that. I'm not here for that. But then I think of the heroes and heroines in the Old Testament who for centuries and centuries Hoped and longed for a Messiah. Not a healer of fevers, but the deliverer of sin. Jesus is saying, I'm here for that. I'm here to preach to those who have ears to hear. I'm here to preach to those who have eyes to see, who will hear my words and see the need that they have for a Savior. I came for them. I came to serve them. Family, this is the heart of our King, that he's not willing to trade temporal relief from the effects of sin for the permanent destruction of its power over your life. Jesus is concerned primarily for the main thing. Jesus will not sacrifice himself as doctor who can only be limited to healing your sickness. No, he will sacrifice himself as a savior and lay down his life as a ransom for many. And this is the news that we must remember every week and news that we must share outside these walls. But family, hear in me the balance. We are to model Jesus' heart. It's important, so important that we are a people known, known by our love and compassion. 
that we are a people known as advocates of justice and mercy, that we are a people who are known for uh, caring about the brokenness and the effects of sin, that we care for the poor and we care for the sick, but the city of Palm Bay will not be changed by these good, earthly, temporal needs being met. These are physical reliefs. We need something deeper. We need something stronger. We need something everlasting. The poor can be poor again. The sick can be sick again. Injustices will continue to plague communities. We need something lasting, and that is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Only the gospel can transform a heart. Only the gospel can make the broken whole. Only the gospel can make the spiritually sick and the spiritually dead be healed. Only the gospel can save from sin and only the gospel can make the man free. I would pretend that everybody at home is shouting from their sofas. If you're in this room or you're watching the live stream or you're listening to the podcast and you have not placed your faith in Jesus, this is what I lay before you, that there is a heart that longs for you. That Jesus' heart is to heal you from the bondage of sin and the destruction of its power over you. That he is a loving redeemer who came for your heart who came and was the ransom and cost for the sin over you. He is a savior who welcomes you into his kingdom and cares about every detail of your life. Trust him this morning.